Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring three types of perception, what we think of as first person, second person, and third person, and their implications for science. My guest is Doug Marmon, who is author of Lenses of Perception, a surprising new look at the origin of life, the laws of nature, and our universe. We've done previous interviews with Doug on some of his other books, including The Whole Truth, The Spiritual Legacy of Paul Twitchell, The Silent Questions, A Spiritual Odyssey, The Hidden Teachings of Rumi, and it is what it is, the personal discourses of Rumi. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Hello, Doug. It's wonderful to be with you once again. It's good to be here. In your book, Lenses of Perception, you start out by uh, pointing out that Sir Isaac Newton really set the tone for modern science by developing very clear, elegant, and precise third-person descriptions of the universe. Yes, he really did. He came up with such a clear way of doing it that it totally radically changed the idea of science. And it was clear, it became clear to the scientists of the day that what he had done was dramatically, an, a dramatic improvement. And, and from what I gather, then all the subsequent sciences, biology and even psychology, uh, wanted to model themselves after Newtonian physics. Yeah, I, I think uh, it, it, didn't, it took a long time for that to happen. Um, scientists became more and more confident in what uh, Newton had done and started using it to more and more fields, applying it to more and more fields. And it's gotten to the point where, uh, it, it got to the point where in the early 1900s, that was the only way to do science. And so that started affecting psychology, sociology, and all these other fields. They had to start getting on board or they weren't really doing science. How would you characterize sort of the basic premise of Newtonian science? Uh, he was trying to solve, first of all, the problem of gravity to begin with, but then he began to expand it to all forces. And what he came up with was a solution where he said, we can look at the effect of a force by the way it accelerates objects. And if there's no force applied, the object will keep moving at whatever way it's moving. If it's going through space, it'll just continue moving and at the way, at the rate it is. But when a force is applied, it changes and alters that object. And that's the way forces work. Even though you can't see the force yourself, you can see the effect and it's quite predictable. And so that was the kind of the solution he came up with. He, he used mathematics called calculus to arrive at some of these conclusions. But what he came up with was this very uh, clever way of looking at the way a force affects an object by the way the object is changed by that force. 
Now, I know uh, roughly the same time that Newton was developing his optics, uh, another uh, scientist, uh, Wolfgang Goethe, the uh, great German dramatist and poet who was also a scientist, was also looking at optics, but I think he was taking a first-person perspective. He, he was looking at the act of, of, of seeing, what, what the experience of seeing was like, and he came up with a very different vision. Yes, it, actually, I've read, uh, been fascinated by his, some of the work he's done, especially in the field of biology, which he thought was his greatest discovery when he discovered that every plant has, is made up of nodes and every node is like the, a replica. That's where everything's happening. It was, it was very much a intuitive first person insight that he had gained. And, and in, in your book, you're looking at, when you talk about lenses of perception, you're looking at uh, how are we perceiving the world? Is it something distant and apart from us, uh, a third-person description, or is it more participatory? Yes, and uh, the, each of those is a different lens. And these, these lenses, what a lot of people get confused is they think, it's talking about the way you believe or a belief system you have or how you think about things. But actually, lenses of perception go very, very deep. Uh, they're very deeply founded on subconscious things and they alter the way we actually see. What we actually perceive is affected by the lens we're using. And so the third person lens we're talking about, which is what Newton used, was just as an outsider, as if he was looking as an outsider, was perfect for his application because the forces were separate from the things that were, they were affecting. So it turned out to be the perfect lens for that. And over time, it's one of the things that happens is the more you use a lens, the, the more it affects your experiences and the way you see. And over time, it's changed the way scientists see to the point where they think that it's the only source of truth. The only way you can really see anything accurately and truthfully is through this scientific lens. But that's not true at all. And the first-person lens, in fact, when you really come down to it, science has to run experiments. They have to go based on each person's individual experiments and their observations. And that is really the ultimate source of our truth. And our third-person perspective is not the way anyone actually sees we can't see as if we're God looking at the world. We actually see through first-person eyes. So the third-person lens is more of a theoretical, abstract lens. Originally, the notion of empirical science, uh, the idea that uh, we observe through our senses, and that's how we build science, uh, was considered the most immediate way of understanding the universe. Uh, William James, amongst others, sort of turned it on his head and, and said the most immediate experience is our first-person sense of things. Yes, and he was doing that in the, in the days before it really switched over and became a sort of thing that's not science anymore. And I think he was much closer to the real heart of what psychology and the truths that psychology can bring out. I think he was much closer to it. Than what we have today. Your book, Lenses of Perception, is, is really a magnificent 
uh, magnum opus. It's like 500 pages. You cover every field of science. And one of the most fascinating aspects, I thought, uh, was your look at uh, people in the field of psychology who are in effect, trying to deny the existence of of consciousness to suggest that it's some sort of an irrelevant byproduct. Uh, started with research done, uh, neuroscience research of the brain, right? And they start having these um, discoveries that uh, it looks like the brain is is actually making the decision before the person thinks they're making it, is even aware of making it. And, and, uh, and that has swayed neuroscientists in a big way to the point where they absolutely are convinced the brain is doing the deciding and the idea that we are conscious is actually a, 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 a ephemeral effect. It's not real. And it, it's really, uh, a, a misnomer. We're, we're, we're thinking we're making the decision. The brain's actually making the decision. But actually, when you really look at the, when you really study it closely, that, what they're doing is they're trying to see it with third-person lenses so it makes sense to them. But when you really look at the whole story, it doesn't hold up. Uh, the, 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 what they call this uh, uh, readiness potential uh, going on in the brain is actually showing that the brain is getting prepared for a decision. But it's not 100% of the time accurate. And, and, and in fact, you can run tests and they have run tests where they can fool it. Uh, and, and so it shows, it shows that that readiness potential is not in fact a decision. It's just the body, the brain, in a sense, getting ready. It senses that a, a decision is about to be made and it's ready at the moment's notice so it can act much quicker. I actually interviewed uh, one neuroscientist, Stuart Hameroff, an anesthesiologist, who suggested that what might be going on is when a person makes a decision, uh, it sends a signal into the brain backwards through time to, to trigger that readiness potential. And, and the reason they think of this backwards through time thing is because the brain actually does res uh, respond much quicker than our consciousness. Our, our, but the thing you have to be under, able to understand is that that's not just the brain. It's our subconscious as well. So when the things are happening at the very fast level, they, they, there was a book called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. When you, the two different systems are the subconscious and the conscious mind. So the conscious thoughts, it doesn't hit our conscious thoughts until after it's hit our subconscious. Subconscious catches things much, much faster. So it looks like it's going backwards in time, uh, but actually it's not. What happens is our conscious mind accepts the date and time of when it hit our subconscious. It considers that part of the information. So it's not making up a backwards in time thing. It's actually accepting that the time was when it first hit the subconscious. That's when we first became aware of it at a subconscious level. Well, one of the most amazing facts that you cite in your book is, is that by and large, the neuroscience 
community has bought into this idea that that consciousness of if if it exists at all is more or less an irrelevant uh, byproduct of the brain and actually the brain is making all the decisions and therefore in fact you might say that uh, uh, all of our behaviors are determined that we don't have free will at all it's all kind of mechanical Yes, and that, in fact, a lot of them have come to that conclusion that free will is just an illusion. And there's been a lot of books written on this, exactly. And I, I address that issue directly and, and show that actually it's not true. Part of the, part of the uh, mistake being made is that conscious thought is considered the only part of consciousness. So all the other stuff is considered what's going on in the brain. And so the subconscious is not even considered a part, you know, I mean, Carl Jung called it the unconscious, and they would say, so that's not consciousness at all, but it, it actually is. In fact, it represents the majority of what we call, what we think of and feel as consciousness. The conscious thought is like the tip of the iceberg. Newtonian science, which is sort of... Uh still to a large degree the the model upon which most other sciences are based because it's a science of the macro world is predicated as you point out on the notion of objects being moved around by forces and when we get into quantum physics that whole idea seems to break down the very idea of objects doesn't seem to hold up yes both objects and forces the, the cause-effect relationship disappears. You cannot see that working at the quantum level. It actually just vanishes. It's like it's not there, which makes, uh, as change physicists' perspective on what forces are, they see them now as the end result of a process that takes place at the quantum level, uh, in this case, between particles. So, uh, for example, charged particles, a, a sense of attraction uh, emerges between charged particles, and that ends up being the source of the force. Well, you seem to be pointing out that these, as you call them, lenses of perception, different perspectives, the first person, the second person perspective are equally important in science in addition to the third person perspective pioneered so elegantly by Isaac Newton. Yes, yes. In fact, you, if you go back, first of all, Isaac himself was very much, uh, uh, first person perception was very much alive. He, although he realized what he was coming out with was very much third person based, he himself had not given up at all on the first person. He, he trusted in his ability to recognize truth when he saw it. And that was purely a first person realization. So he was, in fact, you know, now we look back at him, we say he was not a disenchanted person like most scientists are now. He was fully enchanted. And that was what's so striking about if you look at him and the way he spent more time studying religion and alchemy, uh, which would be no-nos today, <laughs> than he did, than he did physics, uh, and, and optics. But, but he still recognized the value of that. Uh, but the, the first person lens and the second person lens are often left out of the discussions. It's like we have to see everything through third person lenses. And one of the things that really makes science uh, differs from, let's say, 
pure philosophy, uh, which was just about ideas, where any idea, if it sounds great, then it's a great idea. Uh, well, science has theories, which are third-person-based theories, but they always make sure that they ground it with experiments. And so they're always coming back to the first-person lens. And this, in some ways, gives science a more of a, a deeper sense of reality because it's using two lenses. First person is the what you use to verify theories. And third person are the way you see things from the outside. And But what they're missing and have been missing is the second person lens. And that is exactly what you need to understand quantum physics. You need, actually you need all three. But quantum physics is really fundamentally about second person perception. Second person is, is very interesting to me because uh, I remember as an undergraduate, I read Martin Buber's uh, great text, I and Thou. And uh, he makes a distinction between an I, I or you me relationship and an I thou relationship that there's something actually he, I think Buber would say sacred in this understanding of thou. Right, exactly. And he, he talks about that different relationships with God in that way. The I, I thee and the I thou relationship with God. It, two different types of relationships with God. That's where he was kind of discovering many of that. And if you go back in cultures, the second person relationship was far more, uh, uh, there was far more awareness of it. We've lost it with the science becoming such a, a, a compelling part of our lens in modern day. We've lost that second person sense. Uh, and, and even now when you talk about it, a lot of people convert it into a, third-person lens of looking at second-person experiences. But what it really talks about is that there is a personal experience when you're meeting someone and really seeing them, really seeing them as a you, not as just a, an object, but really seeing them to the point where you forget yourself and become caught up in this relationship you're having with another person. And there's something then between you that you're sharing in that experience that is very dynamic and it plays a big part in what's going on at the quantum level. Now, a lot of people who are scientists, I, I think they tend to even think of themselves in the third person, uh, even when they're doing first person, uh, experiments and approaching. Obviously, uh, they have to do their science as a first person, but there's a tendency to kind of deny that that's happening. Yes, absolutely. There's often a, this effort of, I have to get myself out of the equation. I have to get my feelings, my, cause it just messes up my interpretation of what's going on, right? And, and they've learned this because this is the way the third person lens looks at things. But it's interesting that philosophers have been, have in the last, you know, 50 years especially been studying scientists and the way scientists work. Scientists don't like a lot of the conclusion that these philosophers of science have been coming to. And so there's been this big split between the two of them. And the, the scientists keep coming back to, you know, you're missing it. It's not just scientists coming together and agreeing, okay, this is what the laws of physics are saying, and therefore if we agree on it, that's what makes it a law. No, there's something there. There's something reality. There's a reality to it. 
And that the sense of reality is actually coming from the fact that they have a first-person lens founded in their experiences of science. They have to always come back to experiments. Whereas philosophers spend their time with ideas, and only ideas, and when they talk about physical experiments and things like that, it's the ideas of those experiments they think about. They don't get as strong of a sense of that. So you end up with two different lenses. Philosophers get a lens that's largely third-person only, whereas science gets a lens that's mostly third-person mainly, but verified by first-person. And that changes their perspective, their perception. But it's, the gap is between them where they can talk to each other and they do not understand each other. They just say, well, I fundamentally disagree. And they, it's, even though they have friendly discussions about it, they can't work out why they can't see the same way. One of the problems with a first-person description is that uh, we're sort of trapped inside of our skin in, in a way. I can never experience your life, uh, first-person, except perhaps through telepathy, which is uh, denied by science uh, for the most part, not by parapsychologists. But uh, even, even then, it's not actively studied, like how to what extent can I actually get inside of your skin? Uh, so we're, we're sort of isolated. Each first person is their own silo, so to speak. Yeah. And that is one of the reasons that why scientists finds the third person lens so compelling. Cause it's like the God's eye view. It's like the way everything is seeing of everything, but it's not. In fact, it ends up it's leaving out very important, the first-person experience is very different. It is limited, but so is the third-person lens, and that's the thing that's been missed. Um, but yeah, the, the first-person lens, we cannot actually ever know another person's experiences, even with telepathy, which we can talk about more about that. What is being experienced in those cases is actually second-person experiences. And that's what opens up this ability to actually be in touch with another person at a level that's totally very personal, but it's not at all third person. It's very different. Now, I know you're speaking from direct experience because we've had previous interviews and we've talked about some of your uh, telepathic experiences, uh, in fact, rather extensively leading up to this interview. Uh, but one thing we haven't gotten into yet, and I think it's fascinating, is uh, our viewers uh, may know, should know, if they check our catalog, we've done several interviews with Ruth Kastner, who was a philosopher, uh, a specialist in the philosophy of physics, and uh, a proponent of what's known as the transactional interpretation of quantum physics. We've done a number of interviews with her on that subject. And what you discovered is, is that your approach uh, using these lenses of perception, first person, second person, third person, played right into Ruth Kastner's uh, interpretation of quantum physics. Yeah, that was, it was a real discovery for me because I was thinking, wow, I'm way out here on my own with this stuff. I had come to a number of conclusions on how to interpret things, and I was desperately looking for some validation amongst the physicists. Somebody must have some of these same ideas. And I, I ran across her, um, her book, 
and had come out just shortly before I had I had started my uh, work on my book, and I was amazed to see how similar. Uh, for example, she had talked about the quantum level uh, uh, actually existing outside of space-time. It was actually uh, things that happened between particles that existed and they're real and they have an effect, but they do not exist in space-time. So they're not objective. You can't see them with outsider lenses, you might say. And that fit perfectly. Now, what she was describing had been determined purely from working with this transactional interpretation. And I had come from a totally different perspective. My perspective, what it showed me was a little bit different. It showed me why it was not visible by outsider lenses. And that is because it's a personal experience that exists in a dimension between two people or between a group when they're all having a personal experience together. It does not exist as nobody out, uh, outsiders can see that. It only exists between them. And that explains why that happens and is can't be seen objectively. Now, as I recall, Ruth talks about like uh, when a particle, uh, like a photon, is uh, perceived. She says you have to look at both the receptor and the emitter of the photon. That in effect they're shaking hands. It's a transaction, an interaction. It's not just uh, one particle. Uh, all by itself, it's it's always a process. Yes, and when in, in quantum theory, they have basically focused on only the one, the emitter side of the story, and because the other side doesn't sound right, because it sounds like it's traveling backwards in time, similar to what the psychologists were thinking. Right, uh, it's the same exact thing, uh, and but it, what she points out in her interpretation, she says no. The wave does not exist in space-time, so it's not traveling backwards in time in, in space-time. It's actually, this is, these, these waves are actually possibility waves. They're waves of possibilities. Now you say, well, okay, what is, how does a possibility that doesn't, isn't visible, isn't tangible, how does that affect things that are tangible? And that's where, her theory doesn't go any further than that, but mine offers an added insight. These are not just possibilities, they're relationship possibilities. And if you think about your own relationships, it's the possibilities that play such a dynamic role in relationships. Now take a, now this is interesting. Take the scientific lens. The scientific lens, the lesson of science has been don't get confused by your emotions or your beliefs or things like, accept things as they are. See things as they are. But in a relationship, if you see things as they are, it's dead. It's not going anywhere. Nothing's happening. It's the possibilities that make relationships so alive and why they change all the time because the possibilities keep changing. And so that is a totally different sense of what how you should approach them, the possibilities play a very important role there. Whereas in the third-person lens, it doesn't make sense. Why should they? Which is why quantum physics seems to be so confusing. 
And one of the points that Ruth makes, uh, I believe the title of her, one of her books is the, the reality of possibility is, is that what we think of as a possibility, even though it's outside of space and time completely, uh, it is ontologically real and, and it affects things in, uh, three-dimensional space and time or four-dimensional space and time as, as we know it. Yes, exactly. I would think applying that to, to your model, let's take a human relationship. It, it suggests that, uh, well, right now you and I are having this, uh, interaction via the internet and, and we're having this conversation, but we're having a, uh, a relationship in some way that is in part outside of space and time. Exactly. Exactly. And you and I both know that we're experiencing that. I think others seeing this will also sense it and feel it that we're actually enjoying each other's contribution and it's leading to more possibilities. And of course, in a, in a more intimate relationship, like with your wife or with my wife, one might say that the, the, the relationship may be more outside of space and time than it is within space and time. Yes. And, and it's very, it's a private experience. It's something that actually, it's not something we should be sharing with others. It really is between us. That makes it very special. I remember, Doug, an earlier conversation we had about a relationship that you had formed with a bird. And, uh, it was what it would have to say, a, an intimate relationship, that kind of a relationship outside of space and time, even though it was with a bird. And uh, when you told your wife about it, it seemed to somehow dissipate the relationship itself. Yes, exactly. It, what, we, what happened, I mean, this bird was, I mean, a wild bird. I had just came across it while walking one day and it came out of the tree and started it was suddenly we had this experience and it would come out every time I would go out and whistle and it would come from a mile away and fly over to see me. A wild bird like that. It was, it was amazing. But when I shared it, it was, it, I, I basically, it went from being a private, special experience and it got exposed, you might say, to an outsider. It, it died. It went away. It just was gone. Just like that. How does the first person perspective, now what role does that have in your understanding of uh, Ruth Kastner's transactional interpretation and John Kramer's transactional interpretation? Because I know Ruth bases her work on his work. I would say that her, her uh, interpretation does not include the first person. And that's where things get a little different in our interpretations. What I see is she's really caught and captured the second person really well, which is the heart of the quantum wave equation. It's all about a second person relationship. And what I have found with the plays a role, an important role of the first person, is that it explains things that most quantum physicists just accept, but they have no idea. For example, why is all of matter and energy quantized. Why are there, why are, why can't you have half a photon? Why is there particles, fundamental particles, you can't split them in half anymore? Why does that happen? Why does that exist? And in my interpretation, 
all these particles are actually sentient agents. They themselves are sentient. They have first-person perception, and that first-person perception is what can't be split. You can't split. You're either conscious or you're not conscious. You can't divide it. In, you don't have gray, gray levels. You're not half alive. You're fully alive. You know, things like this. It, that's what first-person perception adds to it. And then another aspect of first person that plays a very important role is why does, why are there things called the wave collapse? When the wave function collapses down to one specific actuality, one real, uh, end, end conclusion to an experiment, like the photon hit one place on the screen and not another, what, what causes that? And the quantum wave equation cannot by itself explain that. It doesn't, can't explain why one spot is chosen over another, or when going through two slits, and why it goes through one slit and not another. And Einstein himself was bothered by this. Uh, most physicists say it's just random. It's just, you know, it's statistical. It's, that's all it is. And he's like, God doesn't play with dice. That was his famous comment. And what he means by that is there's got to be some explanation why a photon chooses one spot over another. And what I, I see it is it's the first person choice. That's, that, that's what happens between particles. They choose. And when they choose, that's what, when it becomes a selection of one of the possibilities. Well, the idea that a, a particle, a, a basic fundamental particle, has consciousness is sometimes called panpsychism. Uh, would you consider yourself a panpsychist? I have to say that it fits in that uh, category, but I don't really like the term because it's such a vague term. It means so many things to many. Uh, basically, fundamentally, it, it basically includes there's some form of consciousness in all everything that exists. That's basically what it says. So consciousness is everywhere. But a lot of uh, people say that, okay, that means you have a particle, which is a matter, a chunk of matter, and it has some sense of consciousness. But I would say, no, the particle itself is consciousness. It's the first-person perception. It's a, a sentient being with first-person perception, and all the other qualities of matter and energy are things that arise from the relationships between particles, and that they, they form into create fields, and they create the forces, and everything in our, our world comes out of that. Now, the very notion of a particle kind of breaks down in a way. I've heard it said, for example, that um, one way to think of particles is uh, that there's one electron in the universe and it's everywhere. Yes. They, and that's this is what they get when they have third-person lenses. Here, But here's a problem I could point out with a flaw on that right, right, right away. If you have more than one electron in an atom, they cannot have the same exact state. They must be different from each other. They must have different properties. And that different, that for example, one might be spinning up and one might be spinning down. They can have opposite spins or they can have uh, a different uh, momentum, uh, a spin momentum uh, around the, uh, the center, you might say, of the atom. Uh, they can have different energy levels, but they have to be different. You cannot have two electrons in an atom 
that have exactly the same state. So that shows you, once again, first person perception is distinguishing them from each other. We also have this phenomenon, uh, which has been widely discussed in recent years called quantum entanglement. And, uh, I'm not a physicist, but my understanding is that one way to think of quantum entanglement is that, uh, every particle in the universe is somehow, um, entangled or enmeshed or correlated with every other particle. That it, the whole universe is one quantum system. Sometimes physicists will say that an entangled state makes it impossible to distinguish the two particles. But that's simply wrong. The particles never lose their first-person perception. When they are entangled, they share the state as if it belongs between them. It's shared between the two of them. And that's part of the second-person relationship. But what, like we have relationships between other people, it's the, the balance between the individuality and the relationship. It's always going back and forth. And in fact, the individuality brings life to the relationship. It's the differences that often uh, bring the possibilities. Uh, wanting to see how another person sees things differently brings and attracts us. And so the first person and the second person are always existing. They're never, you never lose one even though the experience of second person is you forget yourself. So that's where that experience comes from. You actually forget yourself, but you have to come back to yourself and have your own individuality as well. A relationship that where the people lose their individuality is not a healthy one. I certainly would go along with that. Uh, and, and yet, uh, when you talk about particles needing to be distinct and separate from each other, the particles don't really, to my knowledge, exist in space-time at all until they've been observed. And they do not even have a body themselves, but they're surrounded by virtual particles, and that's what forms their body. Like an electron is surrounded by uh, a, a swirl, a cloud, it's called, of virtual particles. And otherwise, the electron would be a point in space. But when you run experiments, it's not a point in space. It actually occupies an area, a, re a region of space. Uh, and so that, sh that they've, to, to verify that, they've come up with this, this solution that it, it, it exists as a, it has a body made up of these swarm of uh, particles around it. So that's very true. A particle by itself is just a point, just a, a viewpoint, you might say. Well, it seems to me that what we're really beginning to touch here is the whole question of identity, and it pertains to human identity as well, just as first, second, and third person are ultimately about human identity. Uh, I've often been puzzled by the uh, notion which to which I personally subscribe 100%, and, and it's been uttered by mystics, I believe, in every single culture, that we are one with the universe. And and yet, that uh, leaves us with the mystery of how, how is it that I appear in this body? Why, do, why does it seem that I'm separate from you? And some people have gone through this experience of the oneness state, and you can totally lose a sense of yourself. 
But I have to say that my experience has been that that's a limited state of consciousness. Even though it seems really, really far beyond the human consciousness, and it is, that actually the higher states, if you want to go to the higher states of reality, you have to retain yourself, your sense of self. You have to get beyond that losing yourself. It becomes a passive state, uh, which a lot of meditative practices are passive, uh, but a more active state where you retain your first-person perspective is actually goes beyond that, and and you fi- you find that that's why ultimately we're in this world as an individual. In my case, I can't say that I've ever uh, had that st- that experience of losing my sense of self, maybe in deep sleep or maybe when I was an infant. But uh, I have a pretty healthy ego. I don't think I normally lose it. But uh, even even so, I, I have to think, it, and I think it's intellectually. I subscribe to the idea that that we all share the same ground of being, and therefore, uh, at the deepest level, we're identical. What you're describing is a second person experience. And as a second person experience, we can experience this shared state that we have with each other. That's where we find that state of actually being united or in union. But it's not at expense of first person. The first person actually brings vitality to that experience because the differences between us is what makes us want to get to know each other. Uh, what's, it's what makes things so fascinating to draw us into relationships with each other and to try and experience that union. Well, and I suppose another very important aspect of the first-person relationship is the whole question of choice. I hear from viewers occasionally who who seem to think that there are some invisible forces out there that are making choices for them. They don't feel that they have the kind the kind of choice that they'd like, the freedom that they'd like. That uh, there is conspiracies uh, affecting us, and, and that our choices are therefore limited. Uh, maybe that's because they're not in touch w- uh, enough with their own first-person identity. Yes, a lot of that comes from having too much of a third-person lens. And that's a, it, this is a modern problem. We've become so much used to using the third-person lens that we have eliminated our first person from our experience. And we feel like we're the effect of all these outside forces. All of Newton's forces out there are affecting us, and we can't control that. But that's a third-person lens reality. And the real benefit of getting back to the first person and second person is those lenses are actually much more powerful than third-person reality. They change the world. First-person and second-person experiences alter the outer world as it is. That's where all the dynamic forces come from. That's what brings about change and changes the world. And so when people are feeling like they're like helpless with all in the face of all these outer forces, get back into your personal life, your personal experiences and your personal relationships. And you'll see, especially in the relationships, possibilities change relationships. And those relationships change the world.
One of the things that we talked about early was this idea of um, getting in touch with another person's thoughts. And this is very much one of the things that my theory, uh, this, this lens of perception theory, is that it, what it predicts is that all the quantum effects exist at wherever you find sentient beings forming relationships with each other. All those same effects are not just similarities. They're exactly the same effects exist. And that's one of the things I've gone to lengths to show that they are actually all do exist at the level where organisms relate to each other and human beings relate to each other. And one of these is the state of entanglement. And that is where you actually are entangled, become entangled with another person in a very close relationship. And in that state, actually what they're experiencing, you feel as if it was your, their, their pains, you feel as pains. Their successes, you feel as successes. And it doesn't matter how far away you are, you can have a sense of that. And so these experiences, when people have a, a near and dear one has an accident and the person knows it immediately, that's what's going on. That's the state of entanglement. That's exactly what is happening in a case like that. Well, Doug, Marvin, once again, this has been a uh, delightful, inspiring conversation. We've touched both on spiritual issues, on personality issues, relationship issues, and scientific issues. So uh, your perspective is very wide ranging. Thank you so much for being with me. It's been a good discussion. Uh, well, thank you very much for, for all of this. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.